Hello and welcome back to Lady Time, a podcast for those of us who are navigating midlife. I am your host today, Carol Fitzpatrick, and I am in conversation with a good friend of mine, Ethna Connolly. Ethna is an Irish teacher living in France. She has two sons, one husband and one toy Yorkshire dog who support her as a bipolar being. Living with mental health issues during her menopause was a challenge. Mental health is such an important factor for everybody that we are all mindful of our mental health and the triggers that can happen during menopause can be quite intense. And I know I've definitely met women who have had menopause has had quite an impact on their mental health. So I'm hugely grateful to Ethna for coming on and sharing her life experience with us. And mental health is an issue that I have really wanted to discuss on the show and haven't got around to doing it properly yet. I know I've done some solo casts on looking after yourself, self-compassion, empowerment, and all of that's related to mental health. I, I, I do think we all have to look after our mental health. So today, my lovely friend, Ethnic, is joining me. She's a similar age to me, probably early 50s. And she she has kindly offered to do an interview with me today. Ethna, you're very, very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, Yeah. you too. You too. It was nice to reconnect with you over sad circumstances recently. Yeah. Yeah, I was for my mother's uh, funeral, yeah. So, uh, and I think as being an expat, it's something that, you know, you always have it in the back of your mind that when you get on a plane that you're leaving and you're saying goodbye. So I think that, you know, um, it was, it was very final that kind of, you know, uh, that, that, that was it that, you know, but I got home to see her, um, this summer and I got to see her before she passed. So that was a blessing as well. You know? That was a great yeah. blessing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. To have that notice and to be there. Yeah. Were you with her when she died? Yep, I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh it's not the first time that I've been like my my dad died uh, over twenty years ago. So I had also been in the same situation where I'd come back uh sort of last minute not very much last minute, I was there for his last three weeks and actually in the hospital with him. So yeah, it was, it was, uh, I'd already been in the presence, I suppose, of, of losing a parent or use, had that experience. But again, it's always very, very, you know, sort of, yes, just, just, just sort of destroys you a little bit. You know what I mean? I think losing a mother has a different effect than losing a father. I mean, it, it has for me, I think, you know, um, because she's yes. been around sort of on her own with us for the last, you know, 23 years. So um, and I think our relationship, well, definitely my relationship with my mother was different to the, with my father. Yes, yes. Yeah. And from being at your mom's funeral, I get the feeling that you're quite like her. Uh, I think there are certain elements of her that, yeah, you would see in probably all of us. I I come from a family of five sisters. So, you know, there's a lot of female energy, a lot of female hormones. And I think that we would all have taken certain things, you know, from her. But, yeah, she was uh, someone who was quite extravagant, liked to sort of have everybody look at her, was interested in dressing up and, you know, which was part of her, you know, her sort of personality. It wasn't just like shopping as a shopping uh you know kind of addict but also in uh she's like known for developing kind of monologues for historian for historical figures in irish history and collecting clothes and putting them on show for you know performances so she 
she was someone who I think I really looked up to because she did this in her, she started that when she was in her fifties, when I think the menopause hit, hit her and when she sort of downed kind of tools and said, okay, why am I here? What is this for? You know, so like a lot of people. Amazing. I didn't know mm-hmm. that she did that in her fifties. I thought that's yeah. something she did throughout mm-hmm. her life. Oh, that's amazing. No, sure. No, she was kind of barefoot and pregnant for so long with five kids. And she also adopted, uh, we adopted fostered kids as well. So she kind of kept up the kind of, you know, the baby and child sort of, you know, concentration for quite a long time. And it was only once I suppose we got into our teens that she sort of realized that in her kind of fifties, sort of early fifties that, that she had sort of done her job um and that that it left a hole or a void you know so she she had been involved in things like the Irish Countrywomen's Association and theatre stuff but on the on, just on on the outskirts of it maybe more so but not really taking control and not developing something herself or you know so um I think I mean I think the 50s for women can be a, a sort of make or break time where you can sort of decide right I'm doing this for myself um, I'm going to be creative you know absolutely so uh, and I'll talk to you about that in a second just want to stay with your mom yeah. for one more moment <laughs> she um so she 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 took on historical roles so it was Molly Bloom was it was it Molly Bloom that it she was actually Nora Barnacle because her name oh, was Nora Barnacle. Nora Barnacle Countess Markovich uh Molly Bloom she was particularly interested in Mar- Mariah Edgeworth she developed, yeah, other characters, Lady Lavery, anybody who in Irish history was a woman and who she felt had 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 not been put to the forefront. And in fact, she was contacted and had been involved in a lot of these kind of, you know, um, I suppose, events that she promoted um, certain history of historical figures who had been in the shadow. You know, so the relatives of those people were really held her in high esteem because they said, you put my, you know, my female relative on the map. You know, um, so, yeah. What so a was, great woman! What a great woman! Yeah, she was great. She was great. She had like a. She was really into the Green Party before anyone else, really. You know, and she used to go around campaigning, completely opposite to my father, who was fiendful. And she was wearing. <laughs> she used to go around with a green coat, you know. So it was very. She was very much about the visual, you know. So that here I am. I'm the Green Party. You know, you're not getting away from me, kind of thing. And uh, yeah, she she. She, but she was also quite funny. She was quite, she had a, quite a dry sense of humor. So she also, you know, she used to kind of like slag us off as well. You know what I mean? So you're not going out in that area, that kind of thing. You know what I mean? So she was funny. And we'd be saying to you, you're not going out like that, are you? Like, you know what I mean? So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There was something about the stories that I heard in the church that just, I thought, yeah, that, that. It felt like you had a very similar energy to her. Well, I don't see you dressing up as different historical figures, but you have that creativity or I imagine you do from our, from our, what we've known of each other over the years. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I might not have done something as focused as, um, you know, work orientated. Yeah. As, as developing characters, like, cause I'm just basically a bit lazy, but I think that I do like dressing up and I have always been really into clothes you know so, yes yeah, yeah. And, and and extravagant kind of stuff wearing stuff that was kind of different to everyone else's um yes you always had the lovely fur coat with the yeah. nice collar and and a, and a yeah. very glamorous silhouette well i think it was it was also a bit crazy as well it was kind of like you know um off the wall a lot of the time when I look at some of my, my outfits, you know, over the years, like there was a mixture of kind of vintage, 
yes, which I've always been interested in secondhand clothes. But in terms of even just putting stuff together, in fact, that's kind of my sort of dream job if I won the lotto would be to, you know, own a kind of secondhand shop and to dress people. You know, it's that's the kind of thing I would have loved to do, but not the historical stuff. You know, it's more modern kind of. Okay, when you're back next time you're back in Dublin, let me know, and I'm going to take it to my friend's shop because that's what she does. And it's oh, yeah, really? Tiny little shop. It's the tiniest yeah. shop, but the most beautiful vintage clothes. So yes, yay, great. Oh, oh yeah. You'd be no, I love, that. I yeah. love that. Yeah. yeah, amazing. So you you're living in France. How long are you living there now? Oh, twenty three years now. 23 years 23 years yeah yeah and like that I think that you know the sort of the kind of typical sort of feeling uh or the relationship that an expat has with the country that they have decided to settle in like studies show that you have this kind of like you know a sort of a a sort of curve where you you really are so in love with the exotic exotic part of it at the beginning then you come to a kind of plateau where it's like yeah this is great but then you start to miss things and then there's just kind of up and down sort of you know swings and balances that as your as your time kind of continues you're also feeling the loss of you know older family members uh, maybe not being there so it's something that you know you have to be really i think well settled in the country to not feel that pull to go home. And I still think that you keep that, you know, it's extremely hard. It's tough, you know. Yeah. And I wonder if it's an Irish phenomenon, if it's, it's, if it's everywhere, because it's definitely a strong, I know with any friends who've moved abroad, who live abroad, that they always had that sense of being drawn home, the magnet. Yeah. uh, I, I think it might be something that, with Irish people, because we tend to go abroad a lot and go far as well, yes. um, that that's, yeah, there's a sense of kind of, you know, community that, or that kind of sense of, yeah, home, what it signifies. But, um, I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. I would, wouldn't see it maybe as just being an Irish thing. I think yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's personal. You know, I think it depends on if you have a good relationship as well with your, with your family members, you know. I mean, and I think that a lot of expats as well, and myself, I would talk about myself really, um, you know, I mean, I ran away from Ireland, you know, so there was that initial kind of like, there was, why did I leave here that I have to keep reminding myself about? Because you tend to look back with rose tinted glasses and say, oh, I miss this and I miss the crisps and I miss the Guinness and all this kind of thing. I miss the, but what I do miss about Irish people in in comparison to French people is that they're actually just much nicer, you know. Okay. Bottom line. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, in a sort of, you know, meeting people on the street, meeting people sort of just like that, chatting to people, you know what I mean? It's much easier. And okay. people are, are less, they seem to be less stressed about or hung up about, you know, sort of talking to people, you know? So there's a certain thing about the British and the French that I think there's a certain reservedness. I don't know. Yes. That is yes. not, it's just Irish people are not like that, you know? Yes, yeah, we're a bit more, uh, probably, I want to say authentic, that's a bit mean to say that, but, uh, maybe we're more willing to connect with each other. Yeah, I mean, it, people, if you're walking around a park in Ireland, like, okay, unless there's like 200 people around you, but if you're walking around a park in Ireland, people say hello to you, you know? Like, if you do that in France, they'd probably put you in, you know, 
into into hospital. You know, they kind of look at you like, oh, you're crazy. You know, why are you doing that? You know, and that, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But you know what I mean? Yes. The idea of saying hello to people on the street, if you don't know them, and actually, even if you do know them and your neighbor, their neighbors in your street, they won't necessarily say hello to you unless you've had a drink with them. You know, it's just okay. it's quite weird. The whole. It is. Yeah. yeah. It's very cold. Yeah. 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 Of course. So you ran away. Yeah, I ran away. I mean, it wasn't just the weather. It wasn't just the fact that the time of kind of when I left uh, university, a lot of my friends left and went to uh, New York or they went away to England or whatever. So I was in the kind of wave of, you know, people who, who went abroad. Um, and I stayed in Ireland, but then because of my mental health issues, I ended up uh, sort of hanging around in Ireland, let's say, for about six or seven years but really wanting to leave and I think the the experiences that I had as someone who is bipolar and then experienced also hospital time it made me kind of equate Ireland with you know a sort of not a place I wanted to stay in so it was a mixture it was a mixture of things it wasn't just the weather it wasn't just the fact that you know it was the work situation it was the fact that I found myself in a situation where I had to label myself as mentally unwell and that's really difficult I think as a a young person to sort of take on that label and say yeah, okay, I have mental health issues and I have to take medication for the rest of my life. So that's the struggle that is, you know, something that I went through. Yeah, probably probably from about my early 20s, you know. Okay, yeah. yes. And that 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 is very, very difficult to, to... You're already navigating being an adult and then to have to take that on as well as part of your experience in life at such a young age. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you how did you first come to learn about this or? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the kind of long thing, as I was saying to you before, that could take forever to explain because it, okay. it's a, it's a lifetime thing. It's, it's, you know, it's a journey that begins and usually begins, you know, medically around the 16, 17 because it's hormone related. It's not just hormone related, but it kicks in often around that time. So, I mean, I started around my leaving cert to have problems sleeping. And this okay. was the initial, that was the beginning of it, where the stress of actually doing the exam meant that I was having bouts of insomnia. And so, so stressed that I couldn't actually sleep. So that meant that I was prescribed certain medication to make me sleep, but it undid my ability to really be performing in the exam. And after that, you know, I went to university and things got a little bit sort of more stable, I suppose, but I wasn't necessarily taking medication. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't in a, in a care system or anything at that point. You know, I wasn't in a hospital system. It was really at the end of my university, uh, sort of experience that that sort of stress of coming out, I think, in leaving, uh, you know, university was, uh, was, uh, yeah, something that I didn't deal with too well i also dabbled in a lot of kind of you know like uh leisurely drugs taking which was part of my experience at university but i mean i got my degree you know and it it was quite a good uh mark considering the sort of things i was doing and i performed quite well in other areas you know yeah like i mean i managed to do it but i think that it was the stress of having to come out um and what where was i going and what was i going to be doing 
that meant that and also it was the illness itself you know how it was taking hold so um i ended up i mean it's very difficult to say is it the chicken or the egg was it was i taking kind of like drugs or drinking loads to self-medicate or you know was it something that came about because of the hormones it's very difficult to say because it's such a part of people's lives to start drinking at that age anyway. You know what I mean? So I know that the certain drug taking would definitely not have helped the situation, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. So notwithstanding that you were taking uh, tablets to help you sleep, you, you, you got into university. So that's amazing. And then, yeah. and then with all the leisure or what, what recreational drugs, yeah, you yeah. still did a really good degree. Um, but it's yeah. the transition. So the hormonal transition as a teenager and then the transition, because college life is, 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 uh, yeah, it's like a cocoon. I it think is. It is. Yeah. yeah. It's different. It's kind of you're, you're protected and, and it's, it's a great time, you know, it's a really, really important time for people to, to sort of feel, you know, that they can achieve certain things, but also have fun, you know? Yes. Yes. But then, yes. yeah. Some people never leave academia, you know, they, they go yeah. straight into the next, you know, to yeah. become a teacher there as well. And, and, yeah. and well, like, I'm the case in point. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I came back into academia. I mean, I went off and did some other things in, in between, but, uh, I came back into academia as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I can see that when I went back to education, we're probably, I don't know whether you were around that time or not, but anyway, I went back to, to do a law degree in philosophy and I got it straight away. I got that yeah. whole college life. I was like, this is a really nice life. It's kind of away from the hustle and bustle and drama of mm. other, other life. You know, mm. I, I quite, I, I got it. I was like, ah, oh, I get it. I get the whole reason why people stay in this, this world. Yeah. It feels good. It well, feels I think deep. mature students, as I like to call them, and those that yes. I would deal with are the yes. ones that we love working with as well as, you know, as teachers, because there are people who've gone out there, realized, you know, that this is something that they really want to do and they have a lot of experience to to enrich it, you know, to bring to the table. So, you know, we're usually blessed when we have mature students in our classes because that's, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, they really bring up the level, you know. Yes. Yeah. I remember the lecturer saying that. So we, we'd be the ones sitting down the front, not yeah. afraid to sit in the front and not afraid <laughs> to learn and one, embracing the Taking learning. notes, taking notes, taking actually notes. writing something. Yeah. <laughs> engaging with the the, <laughs> the lecture yes yeah so you're 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 a you're a lecturer now in I, I it's not a really it's not really a lecture I'm an assistant lecturer which means okay. I just work in sort of tutorials so I don't go into oh, yes. amphitheaters okay, right. I don't just I don't go into amphitheaters and give lectures no. okay yeah although my classes themselves can end up being lectures because nobody listens to me or does anything. So I end up lecturing to them just to keep myself, you know, busy. But like, you know, I mean, yes. that's kind of an exaggeration, but it is true. You know, you end up sort of talking, but it's a different level of um of status, actually. So mostly. Um, so what it really means is that you end up doing a lot of the kind of, you know, like, but basic work correcting kind of you know replying to emails and stuff like that and you're not held in the same esteem maybe as a lecturer who is you know special in their special field of whatever i mean that depends but yeah it's usually 
Yeah, but it's a very important role none, nonetheless. I think every role oh, yeah. in, in the university is important. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And, you know, I, I agree that, you know, s- sort of you're, you're really working closely with the students. You're, you know, you're, you're their point of reference more so, you know, um, and there's less of a barrier, you know. Yeah. So it's yeah. important for them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so that started. The label came, was it in your early 20s when you found Yeah, I think, yeah. So what happened was, I suppose, I was kind of sailing free until sort of I I went into a master's and then things just like blew up completely uh, in the second year of master's where I managed to get the master's by the, I don't know, because I think they were just felt so sorry for me partly, but also because they... um, this is the first year that this master's was was organized in Galway, actually. So uh, okay. I think that they were quite kind of lenient about the the situation. Um, I mean, it, it got really bad when it came out of that, came out of the master's. But I had already had a kind of taste of it at the end of my uh yeah, I think it was the end. It's kind of difficult to, to work out because I've been into hospital sort of quite a few times. But okay. um, this yeah I think it was around sort of my it got really bad when I was around 27 26 27 around that time because um I was just having personal issues as well like you know sort of you know boyfriends or girlfriends you know whatever that kind of stuff and I think that that was yeah I found myself um not in a system that I, you know, was confident enough to be about the medical situation. I think, you know, I ended up in places like John of God's, which at the time, uh, I don't know, like the the kind of one flew over the cuckoo's nest idea of, you know, what psychiatric hospitals are like is not that far from the truth, actually. You know, okay. um, it's yeah. because you have everybody lumped in. You know, so you have people who have problems with alcohol. You have people who have other issues like anorexia. You have people who mm-hmm. have, you know, have, are just having kind of mental breakdowns just because of something has happened in their lives. Um, there are people who have certain disorders. I mean, everybody's turning together, but you can also have people who are actually very violent and aggressive and who would be potentially have, you know, hurt people or whatever. So you have, that's that's the reality of psychiatric hospitals, you know. So um, they, the people could be more harmful to themselves than others, but you are dealing with an element of uh, psych, psychosis sometimes, you know, which can be gentle psychosis um, and non-harmful, or it can be something else. So it's – and you're also seeing – quite a lot of you know very distress distressful situations um stressing situations of of other patients in fact um so it's it's uh the the experience of being, scary that, it is scary. scary yeah i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sugarcoat it it's a no. it's a scary business you know um and i think it's scary for the people who work in it i think yes. it's also very scary for the even this the the doctors who have to prescribe because you're they're trying to prescribe on something that they have that's that's mental and so yeah. for me psychiatrists are what i would call the epitome of uh those who are dedicated to trying to cure something that they can't see they can't feel they can't look at an x-ray with and you know they're based on trial and error so it's okay it's yes. it's, it's what i would call explorative medicine on the yes. edge 
all the time, all the time. Whereas when you look at conventional medicine, you know, uh, it's it's not the same. It's not at all the same, you know, and there's a real rivalry between the two. But Is like, there? yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, it's actually particularly evident in France. But um, yeah, I think a lot of people who are general practitioners or specialists, you know, they can write off psychiatry as, oh, that's just for, you know, that's that's not a real it's not really oh medicine. yeah, it's like a pseudoscience or something. It's a, it's a pseudoscience, or it's you know like they're they're not successful. You know they're not. A, a oh success. okay, sorry. Uh, they're not they're not curing people as such. You know, yeah. uh, like they're not fitting on. They're not fitting in a, a harsh. They're not you know doing this, and it's it's. Uh, I just think it's a it's it's so ironic because you know uh, I don't think I would be here if I hadn't met my psychiatrist that I met here in France, you know, um, and I, and I definitely think coming out of the Irish system, uh, I didn't, I didn't really have very good experience there. Um, but I also think it was at a time in my life that I wasn't prepared to take on the label and to take the medication. And that is the golden rule of all psychiatry. The golden rule is, is that you keep taking your medication, you watch your rhythm, of sleep, you know, for my, for bipolarity anyway, and you, you accept the fact that you are ill and that you have to take medication. If you don't do that, you have no chance. You have no chance because you will find yourself back in that cycle anyway. Uh, even if you take your medication regularly, you can still have bouts, you know, but I honestly believe that, you know, without medication, it's just impossible. It's impossible to, and you need a good relationship with a psychiatrist as well. So how, how does, like that's, okay, sounds simple, but it's not. For someone to take on and to accept all of those things you just said is not that simple. Like you said that you had resistance when you were in your twenties. Like how, is it because you see the dangers you see in, in hospital or because the psychiatrist explains it to you and you believe in them and you trust in them or, or is it trial and error yourself? I think it's it's trial and error yourself. You have to yeah. be able to trust, first of all, the doctor. OK, mm-hmm. and you also have to trust them enough to tell them exactly how you're feeling. But it's a catch 22 system situation because people who are in the hospitals want to get out. It's like prison. They want to get out. So one, they can end up just saying what the doctor wants to hear, you know, or they can be so medicated that they can't explain what they're feeling. You know, so, I mean, there are all those complexities of the fact that it's a mental illness and that the behaviors that come out of that can either be created by the medication sometimes because that can happen as well. Sure. Or they just can't express them, you know, and they don't have also the the supportive network once they come out of the hospital situation, like, for example, family and friends who will be there to say, you know, be careful. I've just, you know, I see that you're maybe going to bed late a lot or you're drinking more than usual or you're, you know, you're doing things like you're spending more than you should be, that kind of thing. If you don't have that, like I think most of the people that end up on the streets, like, you know, who are living precariously have some mental disorder, um, you know, that that's where they just haven't had that support network, you know, and they haven't had the luck to meet somebody like a psychiatrist who they can work with um, and they don't have the medication 
that yeah. is working. Sure. And, and, and possibly that resistance to all of those things you mentioned. This oh, definitely. If you don't accept that you are sick, if you don't accept yeah. that label, and let's face it, if you look at the media now, you know, like most of the time the word bipolar is, is put in a report with somebody who's a murderer, you know, which okay. I'm not saying, which I'm not saying is, is not true. They yes. could very well have that. But the fact is there are a lot of people who are bipolar and they're not murderers, you know, mm-hmm. and they're not, you know, they're dealing with depression, which is yeah. the majority of it, or they're dealing with, you know, sort of like there's sort of three different, you know, types of bipolarity that they come up with, you know, but it's, 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 um, it swings and balances, you know what I mean? So, uh, um, you can be manic, yes, and have, you know, lots of kind of ideas and be very creative. And there, as you know, I've mentioned before as well, yes. this, that you can have people like the Kanye West, you can have the artists, the creators who don't take their medication because of the fact that they are so creative in these manic phases and they have so many ideas and they have all this kind of thing, you know, so it's, it can be used as well as a way for people to access creativity. Um, yes yeah you were saying that that the sleep thing was one way of uh by not sleeping Mm. is one way to stay in the creative part of yourself yeah i mean it's it depends on how you know you you can have like a a bad insomnia you know what i mean where it's it becomes to, to a point where you're not sleeping at all and therefore you can't function so at that point that's you know it's too late and you need help um, but you can have managed insomnia, people who, you know, sort of end up getting up really early in the morning or, you know, just sleeping a few hours. And at that point, they feel, yeah, I can survive. I have loads of ideas, I have loads of creativity. And that's that's a manic. That's a really, you know, typical uh, sort of, you know, manic phase, uh, which people have even by not being bipolar, which they can have anyway, but they just have a better ability to sleep and get back into a rhythm than somebody who, who doesn't. Yeah. Sure. So you mentioned something there about having people to, to come to tell you like your loved ones or your family yeah. to say, yeah. Oh, you, maybe you're shopping a bit much, like to yeah. notice the warning signs. What's yeah. it like to hear that? Well, I think you need to be aware of your own, uh, the, what 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 bipolarity dangers are i mean in terms of the manic which is which is what i am i'm i'm not really more on the depression side it's uh the depression side is is much more sort of i suppose well known it's where people just don't get out of bed they don't have the energy to do anything they're not motivated that kind of thing the manic side is more is more that sort of you know where you don't sleep that much you end up like having really highfalutin kind of ideas you think you can do things you you can sometimes have hallucinations there's psychosis as well involved in that which is quite dangerous and um so it's uh it's something that if you're if you're not aware of these things if you're not aware that that's what can happen and you don't have somebody who can say that to you look be careful here well then you're going to slip into that or, or you know quite easily so the the most dangerous i suppose sort of co- co- sort of complexity of bipolarities is when you have the two when you have uh fluctuating phases between being depressive and, and manic and that is when somebody has lost touch with reality but is so depressed that they can then bring themselves to to want to just like opt out and, and check out of life you know so that's the the kind of danger but i think you have to be prepared you have to realize what it is that you do you want do you want to stay around do you want do you want to like do the work do you want to be disciplined 
Do you want to, um, like stop yourself from drinking? Do you want to take, you know, care of yourself? And you can do that for yourself. You can do it for your kids. For example, I think that was one thing that I kind of made. So I wrote a letter to myself and said, you have to take this medication now for the rest of your life, you know, because you have, um, you know, children. And I think that once, once you make that kind of promise to yourself, that can be a step forward. Definitely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about the psychiatrist then. Why was that doctor? Uh, you in France? What, what? Yeah. I think. Is it a woman or a man? Sorry. That's a woman. It was a woman. woman. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think that, I mean, I'm not saying that the other doctors that I met through the hospital systems weren't, were, were horrible or anything like that. I just didn't connect with them. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it was, it's unusual because I'm actually speaking to her in French, but I had a, a doctor. Because basically with my second pregnancy, I had like a total kind of burnout. So it was that's quite normal for people who have bipolar. Um, you know, if they get pregnant, they can have difficulty. Um, yeah, yeah. Particularly because it's to do with, you know, not sleeping if you're breastfeeding and that kind of thing. But so she. Yeah, she, of course. It makes sense. Even the whole, Yeah. Yeah. It's hormonal. It's like, you know, it's, yes. it's the whole thing. So, I mean, I was quite happy to have had my first son with no complications at all. So, you know. Um, but the the thing with the the first psychiatrist that I saw, the original one that I came out with that, so that was about in 2007, um, she was an older woman. Um, I didn't feel that I could tell her everything, that I could say things or I could intimate certain things about my life. Um, she was nice, but she was a different generation. And <clears throat> the woman that I have now is the same age as me. She's okay. the same. I actually remember bumping into her, well, bumping in, she was actually DJing at some kind of like, you know, thing that I was at just by chance. You know, once I'd actually seen her several times and then I saw her at this, you know, event DJing. And I think that just clicked with me that that's why I felt so at home with her. She was somebody who I felt had had the same experiences growing up or at least wasn't surprised by them. So I just uh, I felt so much more at home with her. But the real reason why I felt so at home with her was because she trusts me and because she listens to me. And she when I was during when I was in the the Irish system, um, they refused to give me any sleeping tablets or access to them at all. It was always about giving me other medication. And I don't feel that worked, you know. Yeah. Um, and this time she, you know, she she we have a program in place where, you know, she lets me have access to sleeping tablets. They're quite addictive. So, you know, I can only have access to a certain amount. But they are a safety plan B thing that is that is there. And it's also about trust. It's like, she's letting me take care of my own, you know, mental health plan, if you like. Yeah. So it's, it's just, I think psychologically it's great, you know, because it means that she knows that I can do it at home if I need to, if I, you know, I can take these sleeping tablets for maybe maximum three nights. And then if they don't work, well, then I go back to her, you know? Okay. Great. And so you have a good relationship and, and you monitor yeah. like she helps you if you need it with the monitoring of sleep. Oh, yeah. It? I mean, she's somebody I have her mobile phone. You know what I mean? Like yeah. so I can text her if I have things. And she she calls me Cherie, you know, like, yeah. dear, you know what I mean? It's just it's a different relationship. The woman is just amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah. As she are has, you. As are you. I don't know what it is. It's like when you meet somebody like that, you realize how much she has saved people. You know, okay, maybe she's lost a few people on the way, but my God, she has saved, you know. So it's great to, yeah. to, to have that. I'm just lucky, you know. 
Yeah. I think I remember you DJing. Do I? Yeah, I did a bit of DJing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was, yeah, I, I was interested in, in, in music and I was interested in, in dancing a lot, you know, as well. So yeah, yeah. I did a bit of DJing. I, I kind of dabbled in a lot of things. So it was kind of a, a starter of projects, not a finisher, right? Really, you know. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I, I think like I remember it. you with the headphones on. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably interested in getting the kind of look of having the headphones on rather than actually mixing the music, but you know, getting yeah. it there. Yeah. I, yeah. No, I do. I do you like look it. really good. I could. Well, that's the main thing. That's the main thing. <laughs> well, back then it probably was. Um, <laughs> so then having a child that disrupts your stability then mentally, if you have something like bipolar, what then happens with menopause? Yeah, well, I think that they need to really give out a leaflet to people, you know, who or have them access a video for women, particularly when they have mental health issues and particularly bipolarity and say, OK, if you're going to have a child, this is going to happen. It could happen. OK, these are the dangers. Um, these are also the dangers that are going to happen with menopause. Now, I don't know about you, but obviously from the fact that you're doing your program, your podcast, you know, the, the, the lack of information about the menopause, it's like, it's actually hilarious. It's, it's like, what's this great big secret? It's almost like, you know, Santa Claus or something, except for it's not, it's, you know, devil of Claus. I don't know. It's kind of yeah. like, there's always been this lack of, of, of information about it. Um, and yeah, the menopause for me was, was it was actually perimenopause or premenopause, as you call yes. it, you know, um, which I think is actually worse. Um, yeah. Because no one actually, a lot of doctors, even like doctors here, they're terrible. They they won't even they'll say, oh, we give you a blood test, and if it comes back this certain thing, that means that you, you're in the menopause. So it's like, okay, you've got to check this box before you're in the menopause. I've never heard something so stupid in my life about what the perimen what the menopause is, because the menopause is the physical and mental feelings that you absolutely. have absolutely yeah absolutely and There's so many symptoms that there are so many symptoms and they're they're built into the very essence of what women are here for what we think we're here for why yeah. we're here and the fact that we now come to this point in our lives where we kind of question why we're here it's this the the mental things come in bit by bit by bit just as much as the physical things. So it's not like as if you wake up one morning and go, oh, I've got a hot sweat. That means that I'm this, this and this. No, it's not like that. It's just no, it's so not. complex. Yeah, it is. And how how have you been through this process? Of well, for, for my one, it was just like I went completely ballistic. Like I went okay. completely mental. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2018, so whatever that was about five or six years ago, um, like I just lost it. I just, I was so stressed out. Like I have quite a stressful job actually. Um, when it comes to, you know, around exam time, it's like, okay. it's, it's yes. like history repeating itself exams, except for I'm the person giving the exams and controlling them, but it's a lot of pressure. Um, because of whatever the system that we have here and you can have, you know, there are situations here where students, they can bring you to court if you, you know, if you don't, if it doesn't go right, you know, these kinds of things that can, can be stressful. And I guess I wasn't, you know, I didn't really sign up for that, you know, so, um, but, but I was put in a position, yeah, in around 2018 where I just, just was so stressed with work and, and I couldn't understand why, you know, I was sleeping so badly because I would have had 
you know, elements of that not sleeping around exam time before. And I would yeah. always put in place the kind of, you know, medication thing, this, this kind of stuff that, you know, would work most of the time. But this time just wasn't working. So, you know, I was um, I had to go into to hospital. But I, I was in a point at a point where I wanted a divorce. I wanted to uh, leave France. I wanted to leave my job. I wanted to run away. So far, it was like, yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of women feel like that, that they just want to close the door and say, that's it. I'm finished here. This is annoying me so much. I'm going, you know. Yes. Yeah. That's that's a lot of women's experience. Exactly what you listed there. Want a divorce. Want to leave here. Want to leave my job. I want everything to change. Yes. Yeah. So like, exactly. That's yeah. it. So yeah. that on top of perhaps the awareness of this, am I... Am I going to go down the road of having to go to hospital again or is this going to trigger something big for me? Yeah, yeah. And it did. It triggered something big for me. It was a bit, it was a, a sort of stint in the hospital, two stints actually, which um, the second wasn't so long, you know, because I, I, I kind of had had a rest and I had kind of had time to step back and, you know, look at things. Um, but yeah, it brought up sort of these big, big life questions in a more like under the magnet, magnifying glass, maybe more so because of my illness, you know. So, yeah. Yes. And how how was the French system then? Did they recognize that perimenopause was part of this? At all. The French system is very good at fix at fixing, uh, you know, uh, broken bones. It's very good at recognizing they're the most advanced system for, you know, like sorting you out for your body. But when it comes to things about women's issues, they're as far behind as everyone else, you know. Okay. Um, and I'd actually say they're wor- they're further behind than Ireland now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, we don't have to open up to talk about it, but I think we still have a long way to go. Well, I've heard recently that there are menopause clinics opening up in Ireland. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah. there isn't that here. There isn't that here, you know. Okay. Yeah. And what I see here a lot is is that because French system is so specialized, so you have so many specialists. You have a person looking after your gynecology. You have your your uh, ordinary doctor. You have somebody who look after you if you've got an ear throat or you know. There's so many specialists here, and they do not connect with each other. Okay, so I have I have diabetes, so I have an endocrinologist, so she does not connect with my, you know, my doctor. It's very difficult to have that holistic uh, kind of side of things. And I also think there's that sort of element of, you know, um, for example, my sister Maeve is very, very uh, proactive on this, uh, on kind of getting information out there about the menopause. So she's kind of taken in charge of all of us, you know. But to do with things like osteopathy, things that are, you know, like in your in your family history, we have problems yes. with that. And 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 getting people to, to know that they have to take care of themselves. They have to actually do it themselves and they have to tell the doctors themselves that yes. this is what it is. You know, so it's mm-hmm. seems like the onus, the burden is on women to come to the table or to the doctor and say, I have this, this and this. I am possibly experiencing problems with, you know, perimenopause. Mm-hmm. There's no recognition of this, like, you know, and even here, you know, you could be going to see a specialist for one thing and they won't kind of go, okay, this woman is like, you know, 43, 44, 45, you know what I mean? She's in the bracket of having something that could be, you know, helped out with hormone replacement treatment. And it's like, oh, it's like a secret. We're not going to say it or we're not going to deal with it because it's not our area, you know? So, yeah, um, I, I I do know women who you know early menopause is a thing as well. So or early yeah. perimenopause. Yeah, but, yeah. 
that we, I interviewed Leah uh, ages ago, and she she had early onset menopause. Uh, I think she was in her thirties, so it didn't come in. And I have another friend who is the same. So they were diagnosed with all sorts of things before they yeah. realized. Oh, hold on a minute. Well, I think there's a whole lot of doctors, all sorts of specialities. Yeah. Or somebody went, actually, maybe you need to do this. Menopause. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Well, it's a big thing that's come the level of awareness with, with culture, with medicine, with it's, it's been so in the back room hidden. It it hasn't even been explored. We're just starting to explore it. Thankfully. Well, I think the major thing that I would see, like from talking to women around me, and, and I'm in a bracket of people, I suppose, who I'm kind of older than some of my friends, you know. So I'm, I'm sort of, sort of, I've gone through it and sort of said, uh, you know, the obvious thing that women get, one of the most obvious things is they have problems with their bladder. Okay. They end up having yes. to go to the toilet more, right? Yes. This is like pretty much across the board. Okay. Yes. So. You know, people in their corner, you know, I need to go to the toilet. I don't really talk about it too much. I don't, you know, not, not talking about it, maybe to my, you know, like inner family, you know, you're getting slagged off. Oh, you're always in the toilet, whatever. But in, in terms of actually how much your bladder control can influence your life, I mean, it's huge. It's huge. And I was going to somebody, a specialist, and he was giving me pills for this thing. But he said, I oh, can't take them for too long. You know, not once did he say to me, this could possibly be to do with the fact that you're in the menopause and that perhaps going to see your gynecologist or going to see somebody about, you know, taking hormone replacements could help. So in the end, I, I, I got that that got there in the end because my sister said to me, get some hormone replacement therapy. You know what I mean? And my psychiatrist said, I'm on it. Get some as well. You know, but like even when that that can come back at you, that it doesn't always solve everything. You know, you 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 get the idea or you get the feeling that it's you on the discovery kind of thing that you have to find out about it. And it's so, so common. It's so common, you know. Yes. I mean, yeah. I think there's over 115 symptoms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So many. There's, and and uh, another one is libido. Different. You know, another one is libido, you know. And recently enough, you know, I was obviously losing libido old. or gaining libido. Losing libido. Yeah. <laughs> Losing libido is, I mean, gaining libido would, would probably be, you know, a blessing. A but blessing. No, no. Yeah. no, but like the thing is, is yeah, get, get, you know, losing libido is, I think, a major part of the, also the questioning of the, of the woman herself. I think, you know, I mean, I think yes. great if women get their libido back, if they sort out the, the, everything, that's cool, you know, but, um, but losing libido, c- it's it's to do with testosterone as well. Like yes. we have to create yes. testosterone. And now this is another thing. My sister, she's great. She actually gets testosterone in Ireland and she posts it out to people in other countries because they can't get it. And I tried to get it in France recently and they refused to give it to me. So, you know, I have to say sorry to my husband, but there you go. Like the thing is, is that it's, you know, you, you might think, and this is the thing is that my sister was saying, well, actually, Ireland is way ahead of, you know, France now in that, in that area. Yes, yes, you shouldn't yes. be afraid to go and say, okay, I have my hormone replacement. I have my gel, whatever is my estrogen, my progesterone, but I also need testosterone because yes, we do. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. 
and it, it, it's it's a huge loss and it's not something that women talk about very much well, it, no. it, to lose your libido it's a really big part of us our sexuality well, of course is it is yeah. yeah yeah of course it is and 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 uh it's just another kind of you know like chink in the sort of if you're in a relationship as well which let's say has been you know like fairly stable and you've you know we've had yeah, you've, you, you've brought up your family to a certain extent and your kids are not interested in, in either of you anymore. And, you know, now, you know, you're actually not interested in each other anymore. Or if you are, that's kind of one-sided. Um, you're interested in running away, escaping to something new, having an adventure. You know what I mean? Just getting out of those kind of like all those things that become negative in your life because it blows it out of proportion. You don't have the hormones to pull you back down again and to center you, you know? You you just see yes. everything modified. And a lot of relationships break up during this. Oh time. yeah. Oh there yeah. There are a lot well, of divorce yeah. cases or people who yeah. get divorced. It's it's a big factor. And it's 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 the frustration, like you said, but it's also the libido. Like sometimes yeah. the bottom line. It, that's like that's obviously important to everyone, but it's important to some people more than others. And it's and it's a loss. It's like a grieving. And it happens so gradually. But it comes back, apparently. Oh, yeah. No, it can it come back. back. Yeah. yeah. And it can't, but it can be helped by, for example, getting yes. access to testosterone. Testosterone, yes. Yeah. But it can also come back because you work your way through your menopause and you come out and you say, and you find the thing that, that you that you want to create. So you, your your body can no longer create, but now you can find something to create that is for you you know so and just you you know um and i think yes. that you have to find that you know you have to to find that and it could be anything it could be i don't know it could be taking a bike around the the, the country it could be you know like producing something uh that's new uh, starting up a new business it could be just something like taking up arts and crafts i mean i took up painting you know what i mean it's like it's totally saved me you know so, amazing great yeah. yeah that's right i see your stuff on instagram it's really awesome. Yeah, and I mean, that's also something that's really accessible to everybody as well. The fact that now, nowadays with social media, you can just put your stuff out there if you want to, you know yes. what I mean? Yeah. And that's great, you know? It is, yeah. So yeah. how did the art come about? Was that something you just had a draw towards? Have you always been? Yeah, I think I've always had a kind of, you know, thing where, again, in reference to my, my, my sister, who plays a big part of my life. She, she's an artist. And I think that I left her to kind of have that role and, uh, and probably felt that I could never compete on that level. So I never really went down that line, even as a kind of, you know, like I used to get into kind of dancing stuff and I used to do stuff that was more, you know, maybe, um, in, down that line or exercises and something like that, like running and that. But then, um, yeah, the painting, I, I was always drawn to creation, you know, and I'd also think ironically was because when I was in the hospitals, like sometimes, particularly in France, they have access to, you know, painting kind of workshops. You know what I mean? And because I wasn't always in the fit state of mind to even pick up a brush, you know what I mean? But I used to love going there. I had that feeling that it was a safe space and somewhere where I could, you know, like just kind of like play around with you know what I mean and this time uh, you know I just decided I'd go through a friend because she's she holds the class she's a painter herself so and she's had some mental health difficulties as well and she says that most artists do actually you know so she you know she's kind of the classic kind of you know because painting and being an artist it's a recipe for being depressed 
<laughs> well, yeah, if you, if it's your, if it's your, if it's your job, because you spend a lot of time on your own. Okay. And you are putting yourself out there to be judged all the time. And oh, so yeah, if you don't, perfect. if you don't, and you're also that, bringing a message to the world. I feel like painters are interpreting the world. So they're a little yeah. bit outside to do that. So yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's, well, I think it's like the, it's the kind of like, you know, it, it can lead to that kind of de- yes. sort of depressing kind of life. You know, if, if you have you can be very robust and be very good at getting out there and socializing and, and, and selling yourself, which is a different like it's a strength, you know. But I think a lot of, you know, painters, I think, particularly do because it's quite time consuming as well. Yes. Like I'm not saying other art isn't time consuming. Of course it is, because I have also a family who are involved in, in making art that's, you know, not necessarily painting. But it's painting is often a solitary activity. Um, yeah, so it, it can be. Yeah. So does it help with everything? Yeah, because it does help with uh, it actually helps because I do it in a workshop. So it's with other people, you know. Yes. I definitely think if anyone's going to get into some sort of creative thing to self sort of they're drawn to that. It's good to do it with a group, you know. It's a great idea. Safe. It's a safe space. It's, you know, it's a time, a time to kind of meet over things, you know, to chat, but you also produce, you know, you also create. So yeah, even if, like whatever pottery, I don't know, anything, music, you know, it doesn't really matter as long as. Yes. Yeah. You know. yeah, absolutely. It's you're using your hands, you're using the different part of your brain and, and it's, it's play. Like you said, it's yeah. play with, with something you produce at the end. Yeah. I'm yeah. just encouraging my kids to take on that subject whether it's music or art alongside the academic just to help process what they're mm. feeling as well or what they're encountering with academia to have that other side of the brain go okay let's play for a while and and learn about that as well that's really great Edna and thank you I am so I have so much more awareness now from listening to you about going through mental health issues I have many other questions, but I think we'd be here for hours. I would be there for hours, yeah. Just takes I am so appreciative of you coming on to talk about this. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage. And you're just uh, such a wonderful person. And you always have been. I have this memory of us being at a party and this young man said something really horrible to me. And I was upset. I probably wasn't visibly upset, but I was withdrawn and maybe in another room. And you came and you saw that and, and you spoke spoke to me and you brought me down or brought me up from that place. And you said, oh, good. Great. Great. Yeah. You really... I was actually of some use at a party. <laughs> You were, you really were, you really, like, obviously what he said was nothing to do with me. It was about him, but it was so horrible. And when you're in your twenties and you're like, you're having a nice time and someone comes up and says yeah. something nasty about you, yeah. you, you were the one who fished me out of that pond of going down, you know, yeah. when you go down, yeah. uh, yeah. to, to believe what uh-huh. you said and you, you got me back up and you said, no, that's not you. That's not, anyway, that's not such a bad thing, but that's not you. And it was just, so it's always yeah. stuck with me. Oh, so good. Thank you. Yes. Oh, that's great. I'm glad. Yeah. That I, I, I don't remember. I think a lot of sort of that kind of my memory has gone as well. Probably menopause, but, uh, yeah, you know, that too. We lose yeah. too a bit. But yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm good. Yeah. Well, actually, I think you're brilliant as well. 
from A to Z. From A to Z. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really admire you, and I am even more admiration of you now, Ethna, because it takes a lot of courage, like I said, to talk about these things. But actually, we need to talk about them. I think if it hasn't been something you've been living with, you know, noticeably in your 20s and 30s, maybe 40s, it can happen. It can come to the fore at true menopause. I've noticed it. but It can, yeah, it can. And I think that that it's actually even harder at that point for somebody to take on that label and say, I am sick. But what you have to remember and what anyone who faces this is, is that lots of people go through depression and go through certain things during the life. It's quite normal, actually. And sometimes we just need that medical help. I just think that taking medication is not giving in. It is taking on that role and stepping up to the table, you know, and it takes discipline to do that. Um, and you should be doing it for yourself as well as for others. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So it's, like as if, it's like as if you've got cancer, you know what I mean? Just yeah. Take meds, take meds, you know, yeah. that's, yeah. that's, if there's any kind of message that I'd be saying to people is that like, don't be afraid of it. Like get out there, take the meds and do it. Like do the program, you know, and show up. Because that's you show up doing. because that's yeah. what you have to do, you know, yeah. because, you, you know, that's how, how you save yourself as well. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's been so enlightening. I'm very grateful. And thank you. And yeah, I will talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks a million. OK. Talk to thank you soon. You. So I actually called you ethnic Connolly. Let me know. What's yeah. your French name? My French name is Balavoin. Balavoin. Yeah. You've been listening to Ethna Connolly Bellafon on the Lady Time podcast with Carol Fitzpatrick. Thank you for listening and I'll be back soon with some more interviews. Thank you. Bye.